Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Today, we're going to be starting a new series called The Struggle is Real, Mental Health in in the Christian Life. Some of you know this, some of you don't. I I am, uh, by profession, a marriage and family therapist. And I've been doing this for about 40 years. Most of my career, I spent training people how to be family therapists. And I also did and continue to do that, that kind of work. I also spent a number of years in ministry. So I was a minister. In fact, I was a minister at this congregation for about three years back in the early 2000s. So uh, I'd say my professional life really has been at the crossroads of mental health and faith. And, And one of the things I've discovered is that it's a controversial intersection. That uh, there are certainly, on the one hand, uh, some people in Christian circles that see challenges to mental health as challenges to their faith. After all, you know, doesn't Peter say, cast your anxieties on the Lord, right? And, and, And the idea behind this is that, well, if we just give everything over to God, if we pray, if we uh, turn things over to God, then that will take care of everything. And we won't have to worry about mental health. And, and actually, if somebody struggles with mental health, maybe it's a sign that they just really need to grow in their faith. And they, on the other hand, one of the things I've noticed over these 40 years is how a lot of people in Christian circles have embraced mental health. So if you go to your local Christian bookstore, I am sure you'll find a shelf there on dealing with depression and anxiety and other kinds of issues related to mental health and how to do so from a Christian perspective. Christian counseling centers or faith-based counseling centers have popped up all over the place, not just here in this town, but all over the country. And the message there seems to be that faith is really a resource for us as we struggle with issues that are related to mental health. So which one is it? It seems like we're really talking about two different things here. Either mental health struggles come because we don't have enough faith, or faith is a way to help us deal with our mental health struggles. Well, I don't see it as an either or. I really see this as a both and kind of situation. Yes. People do struggle with mental health. Yes, there are mental and emotional disorders that that we we diagnose for. And Christians are not immune from them. We're like everybody else. We struggle with depression. We struggle with anxiety, just as other people do. And, and spoiler alert, this is the message I want you to take home with you today. And when we struggle with mental health issues, God shows up. So a lot of people will say these days, and you've probably heard this, that in the United States we're dealing with a mental health crisis. It's a national crisis. And certainly some of the statistics here would, uh, would, would bear that idea out. 
So for example, it's estimated that about 20% of all adults in the United States struggle or experience some sort of mental illness at any given point in time. And that for about 5% of American adults, it's severe enough that it really limits their daily functioning. We sometimes look at suicide rates as a measure of mental health. About 13 out of 100,000 people, or that's the, that's the suicide rate in the United States amongst adults, it's about 13 per 100,000 people, which may not sound like a lot, but it's about a 35% increase over the last 20 years in the United States. It especially impacts adolescents. There's an estimated by the Center for Centers for Disease Control that there's about a 47% increase in suicide rates among adolescents in the last 10 years. Those are sobering statistics. And one that's not a statistic, but if I, you've talked to just about at least the, the, the mental health professionals that I know, almost all of them, perhaps all of them will tell you that since the pandemic hit, those numbers have just shot up through the roof. So there's a great demand for mental health services these days. In fact, that's, that I think is part of why we're talking about this. So it raises the question then, what does scripture have to say about this? How does the Bible help us navigate this and understand this whole notion of mental health? Well, the truth is not much, at least directly. You'll find the term anxiety showing up sometimes in Scripture, depending on the translation you use. You may find the term depression showing up, but you're certainly not going to find bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or ADHD or some of those other things that, that, we, that we diagnose these days. And, and the, you know, the truth is that the Bible, in, if, when we're talking about the way in which we talk about mental health services and me- mental health today, you don't find a lot about that from Scripture. But there are a lot of stories in Scripture. And as you take a look at some of those stories and you take a look at some of the behaviors of some of the main characters in those stories, you find behaviors that are consistent with what today we would call challenges to their mental health. In fact, we might even diagnose them. For example, Saul. Remember Saul? Saul was the first king of Israel. The people of Israel wanted a king, and, uh, and God, somewhat reluctantly, but uh, listened to his people, and he appointed Saul to be a king. Saul started off on a good foot, but after a while, he began to become too independent, and he wandered away from God. And in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we find that, that an evil spirit comes into Saul, and he goes into these black moods. And, and so, in order to try to help with these black moods, uh, they, they, some of his advisors say, well, really what we probably need to do is find somebody who can come and play some soothing music for, Dave, for him. So they go out and find a guy by the name of David. You all know David, right? And David is, is a harp player, and he comes in and he plays the soothing music on his harp, and it seems to have an effect on Saul. It seems to help him when he goes into these moments of darkness. But David is also a warrior. You remember the story about David and Goliath. That happens in the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 17. And in 1 Samuel 18, you find that, that he's become very popular. And the saying about that a lot, amongst a lot of people is that Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his ten thousands. And Saul becomes jealous. 
And so one day he gets into one of these black moods and David comes in and he starts to play his harp and Saul picks up a spear and he throws it at him. Now, following that, Saul begins to chase David around the countryside trying to kill him. Now, what was going on here? Well, if we had somebody like Saul today, we might say that Saul was dealing with clinical depression, perhaps with psychotic features. That, that Saul was dealing with uh, uh, something that was really overcoming him and that was really uh, uh, affecting his ability to think clearly. And he wasn't able to keep his jealousy uh, in, within the bounds and it led to him throwing a spear at David. You know, perhaps, perhaps that's what we would see in Saul if we saw him today. Or another example is Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet of God who has a very, who is in a very unenviable position because God has told him to go to the people of Israel with a message that they do not want to hear. Essentially, what Jeremiah is telling the people of God is, look, you are going down the wrong path, and if you don't change, if you don't straighten up and fly right, as my ancestors used to say. If you don't, if you don't change, things are going to go very badly for you. And of course, he went to a group of people that didn't want to hear what he had to say. They rejected his message. They tormented him. They tortured him to some degree. And, and Jeremiah was in this situation where it seemed like he was doing what God wanted him to do, and he was getting nothing but rejection for it. And so in chapter 20, for example, we find him saying this, and this is just one example from Jeremiah. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to, and to the end of my days in shame? Wow. <laughs> That's pretty dark. I have to tell you, if Jeremiah was in my office I might be saying, so Jeremiah, have you ever thought about hurting yourself? You know, have you thought about suicide? Have you, have you, have you, do you have some sort of a plan about this? I'd be pretty concerned about Jeremiah. I mean, cursed be the day I was born? You know, why did I ever come out of my mother's womb? We had Jeremiah today, we might very well say, well, Jeremiah was somebody who was clinically depressed. And then there's Legion. He shows up in Luke chapter 8. So Legion was the kind of guy that uh, parents tell their children to stay away from. He's crazy. He's running around the countryside naked, not wearing any clothes and acting like a madman. People are scared of him. They try to control him. People from the town come out and they guard him and they lock him up and they put him in chains and it doesn't seem to make a difference. He breaks out of those chains and he's running around the countryside and then Jesus shows up one day and Jesus sees what's going on. He sees that there's an evil spirit in him and he starts to cast it out and, and Legion runs up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, son of the most high God, do not torment me. It's not legion that's speaking, I suppose. It's the evil spirits that are inside of legion. 
And so, long story short, and you may know the story, Jesus casts these evil spirits out of legion and he, into, into a herd of pigs, and the pigs go over the cliff and they die. And the people from town come to check this out, and when they see what's going on, they're scared and they ask Jesus to leave. I mean, maybe they're concerned that they don't want him to do any more economic damage to their town, but I suspect the real reason they were afraid of Jesus <laughs> was because here was this crazy guy who was dressed sitting there in his right mind. And they didn't know how in the world Jesus did that. So what is this? What about this whole notion of evil spirits? I mean, I think it's a fair question to ask were these truly mental and emotional disorders we're talking about here? Or was... was was Lazarus, you know, or, excuse me, Legion, a paranoid schizophrenic, or was he associated with disassociative identity disorder, or some other, some other diagnosis or label that we might put on him? And, you know, when people have mental illness today, or when we deal with various kinds of disorders, is it really not that, but is it really Satan that's coming in and attacking us? Well, let me say, first of all, that I don't know very much about how Satan works. And I would just as soon not learn anymore. I assume that he's very powerful. And I assume that he's very sneaky. And I assume that he can do all, he can wreak all sorts of havoc in our lives if we will allow him to do so. But I will also say that we have learned a lot in recent years about mental illness and, and mental disorders. You can move that slide, thank you. I mean, one of the things we're learning, we probably have learned a lot about this in the last 50 or 60 years, is that a lot of mental disorders are heritable, meaning that they, are, they tend to be passed down from one generation to the next. So if your grandfather or your mother uh, dealt with clinical depression, the chances are greater that you will deal with clinical depression. That's not to say that you will, it's just to say that they're greater, that it's a greater likelihood that that would be the case for you than it would be for somebody whose grandfather or mother did not deal with clinical depression. And that's because there's a biological piece to this. That, that it's getting passed down somehow from one generation to the next. We could say the same thing about other things like alcoholism or various, or anxieties or various kinds of mental disorders. We've learned a lot about brain chemistry, particularly in the last 25 or 30 years. We've been able to map the brain and, and how it works and to see how it's working and firing, you know, with, with, uh, base, with MRIs so that you get a picture of what's happening there. And then you compare the picture of what's happening uh, in, a, in a person's brain who's, who's depressed or anxious with somebody who's not, and you see what the, those sorts of differences are. And it's told us a lot about how brain chemistry impacts mood. And perhaps if we can alter the brain chemistry in some way, which we've, there are a number of ways in which we try to do that, we can alter the way somebody feels. We've learned a tremendous amount over the past few decades about the effects of trauma. 
How somebody who's affected with uh, uh, abuse or neglect or poverty or alcoholism in their early childhood, how they can carry that, the effects of that with them for decades. And it may not even show up until sometime later on in their lives. So, you know, what does all this mean? Does, I'm not suggesting that it means that there weren't evil spirits in, 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 uh, in Legion and in Saul and other cases like that. Well, what I am suggesting is that we're, we're learning some things that help us understand perhaps a bit about what people were experiencing when they were, when they were uh, experiencing those evil spirits in Scripture. But the truth of the matter is, there's a lot that I don't know here, a lot that none of us know, and I'm also a lot less concerned about the role Satan plays in developing mental health issues than I am in the role that God plays in helping us deal with them. I've been teaching a class recently online, and one of the books is called A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. And in this book, Lewis talks about losing his wife suddenly, after they'd only been married for just a few years, and how he has experienced such pain about that. And in the midst of this pain, he's often asking the question, where are you, God? Where did you go? I'm in such pain here. Did you desert me? And what he concludes is, no, God didn't desert me. God's been here all along. I think if you take a look at some of the stories in Scripture about people who really struggled, you can also see how God was really there. For example, what about Elijah? So in Elijah, in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, we have this story about Elijah, who is, um, uh, excuse me, Elijah who is uh, dealing with uh, uh, a, a drought in his land, and he's, he's created a uh, uh, pretty bad relationship with the king, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel. And they've, they've been going at each other for a long time. And much of this is, is because uh, Jezebel worshipped the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Well, they have this drought that's going on in the land, and they don't know what they're going to, to do about it. And so Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth to a duel, so to speak. They both go up onto Mount Carmel, and, and he challenges them to, have their, to prepare a sacrifice and have their God call down fire. And so that's what they do. And of course, their God does not call down any fire to consume the sacrifice. And so Elijah then repairs the altar of God, and he puts the sacrifice on it, and he soaks it with water, and then he prays to God, and fire comes down, and it consumes the sacrifice and all, everything around it. It is such a great moment of victory. And then after that, it even starts to rain. But what happens next? Jezebel finds out about this, and she gets, words, she gets word to Elijah, you're a dead man. I'm going to track you down, and I'm going to kill you. And Elijah's scared, scared for his life. He's had this great moment of success on Mount Carmel, and suddenly he finds himself in despair, and he runs out into the wilderness, and he hides underneath a tree, 
and he cries out to God, and he goes to sleep. And then he wakes up, and he finds that an angel has prepared some food for him. Then God tells him to go out into the wilderness a little further. And as he goes out into the wilderness, God sends a big wind, and he sends an earthquake, and he sends a fire, and God is in none of those things. But he is in the still, small voice that says to Elijah, after all of those things have happened, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats the complaint that he's been making to God all along. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. You ever felt like that? I'm the only one left. Nobody else has ever experienced this, anything like this. Just me. And God says to Elijah, well, here's what I want you to do, Elijah. I want you to go find this guy named Elisha, different name, and appoint him to be the next prophet. And by the way, I also want you to know that there are still 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. So what does God do for him here? Well, first thing he does is let him sleep. And then he feeds him. And then he listens to Elijah, to Elijah. Not just this one time I talked about, but two or three times he hears the same complaint from Elijah. And then he shows himself. And then he gives him a plan. And then he gives him some hope. There are still 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. My point is that God's there. Elijah may not feel like God is there. He may feel like God has completely deserted him, but that's not the case. In the middle of all of this, God is not only there, but he ministers to him. Or how about David? We talked about David a little bit earlier. You know, David is the great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. But David had plenty of struggles on his own. We already have seen the one where Saul is chasing him all around the countryside trying to kill him. There's another time later in David's life where he, he sins and commits adultery with Bathsheba and they have a child and the child dies. And David is overcome with sorrow. Or a little later on, one of his own sons tries to orchestrate a coup and take over his kingdom. David has lots of sorrow. He has lots of bad things happen in his life. And he cries out to God. There's so many of the Psalms, many of the Psalms that we think of as laments, and a number of them have been written by David. And they've, they, have, uh, they, they say things like this. Have mercy on me, my Lord, for I am faint. Heal me. My bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Or in Psalm 22, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out day to you. I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I do not, I find no rest. I mean, this is a guy who is crying out to God, who feels deserted, who feels like he's all alone. But is he? No. Because what do we find when he's being chased around the countryside? That eventually, God allows David to take the role of king, and he protects him from Saul. And when his son dies, God gives David and Bathsheba, another son who eventually becomes king of Israel, Solomon. And when his son tries to take over his kingdom, his other son tries to take over his kingdom, God restores David to the throne. Time and again, God comes through when David is in time of need. And you see David respond to this. In Psalm 40, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the muck and mire. He set my feet on a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. David knew. He knew that even in the worst things that were happening in his life, God was still there. What about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one who, kept, who was coming along and, and he would tell people, he was preaching out in the wilderness and telling people to repent. But his main message was, there's somebody who's coming who's greater than me. This Messiah that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years, he's not only coming, he's here. And look, there he is, the Lamb of God. That's the guy I've been telling you about. But John got crossways with the king, Herod. He pointed out to Herod that he was doing some things that were immoral, and Herod got a little mad, and he threw him in prison. And while John is wasting away in prison, he begins to be overcome by despair and begin to have doubts. He begins to have doubts, and so he, he gets some of his followers and he says, go see Jesus and ask him if he's really the one or if we should be waiting for somebody else. Can you imagine? The forerunner, the one who has led the charge in telling people, this is the Messiah, and now he himself is beginning to question it. <laughs> and, and, and the disciples of, of John say, Go tell him what you've seen. Go tell, you know, because Jesus says, go back and tell John what you've seen, that the lame are healed, and the blind see, and the deaf hear, and the lepers are cleansed, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to everyone. And then Jesus turns to the others that are there, and he says, let me tell you something. Amongst anybody who's been born of woman, there is nobody greater than John. But he who's least in the kingdom of heaven 
That person is greater than John. It would have been easy, I think, for Jesus to say, John, how can you doubt me? How can you not believe? You're the one that's been telling everybody that I'm the Messiah. But that's not what he did. At that point in time, Jesus gave John what he needed. He validated that he was indeed the Son of God. So what can we say about a Christian response to struggles with mental health? Well, one of the things I would say is that I firmly believe challenges to our mental health exist. That we deal with depression. That we deal with anxiety. That we deal with a whole host of other kinds of diagnoses, if you want to think about it in those terms. Disorders that, that, we, that we struggle with. And that as Christians, we're not immune from it. And as proof of that, I would point to these great heroes of faith who struggled themselves. To Jeremiah, to David, to Elijah. Those kind of folks, they were great servants of God and they struggled at times with things in their mental health. But the main thing that I would want you to hear today, that I want you to walk away with, that spoiler alert I told you about a few minutes ago, is that when things like that happen, God shows up. He's there. He's in the middle of it. When we are in despair, when we're overwhelmed with anxiety, God is still there. And he ministers to us. Now, interestingly enough, he may not minister to us in the way we think he's going to minister to us. There's an old story, probably everybody here in the room has heard it, or if not, most of you have. But you know, it's the story of the guy who's in a flood, and he crawls up on the roof of his house, and thinks it's raining hard, and a guy comes by in a rowboat, and he says, here, get in the rowboat, and I'll take you to safety. He says, no, don't worry about it, God's got this. He's going to rescue me. You've heard the story. And then along comes another guy in a motorboat, and he says, hey, get in the boat. I can get you out of here. And the guy says, no, it's fine. God's going to take care of me. He's going to rescue me. And then the water keeps raising higher and higher. The guy keeps going up. And now he's on the peak of his roof, and a helicopter comes by, and it drops down the ladder. It says, grab onto the ladder. I'll take you to safety. He says, no, really, God's going to rescue me. And, of course, you know the story. The guy drowns, and he goes up to heaven, and he says to God, where were you? I thought you were going to rescue me. And God said, look, I sent you a rowboat and a motorboat and a helicopter. What more do you expect? <laughs> God works through people sometimes. And if you're struggling with your mental health, if you're feeling confused about something, if you're in a slew of despond, as Pilgrim's Progress used to say, if you are overcome with anxiety, reach out to somebody. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody here at church. Maybe it's a friend of yours. Maybe it's a, a mental health professional. But reach out to somebody because God is there and he can work through them. I think about, when I think about this whole issue, I think about the words of Paul. In Philippians, 
I, I, this, I find this passage so inspiring because Paul is writing from prison of all places. He's locked up. And his first words here in this verse is, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. The book of Philippians is filled with joy. And then he says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is here. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we struggle, God is still there, and he helps us. And as we turn to him, and as we allow others to help us to turn to him, he gives us his peace. I don't know how that peace works. Paul didn't either. He said it transcends all understanding. But it is the peace of God that will help us in those times when we're hurting.